welcome to the Redeemer Coast podcast. Our prayer is that this message will inspire hope, build your faith, and encourage you with God's purposes for your life. Just some of the preparation for today's message a few days ago. I don't know if you saw it, and if you did, I, uh, I'd welcome you to, if you like it, to share it. And um, and it was interesting because uh, someone commented, um, we had some nice comments, and then someone commented, Piffle, P-I-F-F-L, Piffle, Piffle. I had to look it up. <laughs> Piffle. <laughs> And piffle means what nonsense. <laughs> Jerry, what nonsense, what rubbish. And I thought, oh, that's all right. I actually deleted it. I thought about replying and then I just don't want to get it into an argument. So that's fine. But it's interesting because, um, and I hope none of you saw it and, uh, because I think I got onto it pretty quick, but it means what utter rubbish. And um, it made me wonder why, as Christians and people, we're so obsessed uh, with legalism and so obsessed with sin. And um, why is it? I've got friends, uh, a couple of good friends, old friends for decades that are atheists, and, and all the time the conversation gets around to being uh, the Bible, a book of morals, you know? And I wonder why that is, because those of us that have experienced life in Christ, we know that that's, that's like a side issue. That's, it's about life. It's about knowing God. And, and why is it, though, that the world and so much of the church is obsessed with this? And I do want you to understand that this is in no way license to do or to sin or to act against your conscience or against what you know God wants for you. But it still doesn't answer that question. Why we're so obsessed with it? And so today's, um, with the law, we're judging people, with critiquing and ranking and all those things. So today's a message is called, uh, and we're part of the grace, the ABCs of grace, it's called Grace, the, uh, the Key to, I've got it here, Grace, the Key to Victory Over, dot, dot, dot. It's like fill in the blank. Grace, the Key to Victory Over, dot, dot, dot. The Bible says Jesus came uh, and showed us grace from grace to grace. And that doesn't mean that grace is the only part of any ingredient for victory. But without it, the bread just won't rise. And so it's like grace is the key to whatever victory God wants us to have, but there may be different doorways that we've got to go through, you understand. 
So with healing, it might be understanding uh, what was done at the atonement. It might be understanding laying on the hands or gifts of healings or working of faith. But if we don't open that door with an understanding of grace, of his unconditional goodness to us and, and our undeserving nature of it, then that will never work. And, and, and obviously, um, you know, prayer is incredibly important. But if we don't go through that doorway of prayer with an understanding of grace, like it, it's, it's probably less like a key and more like a punch number thing because you, you'll feel like you're going through, you'll be going through the, the, um, the actions but just not getting the blessing. And you think, I'll walk through this doorway of prayer, but, but where is it? Or it's hollow. And there's many avenues in which God releases grace to us uh, through families and relationships and marriage and church and the Word of God. But if you read the Word of God with this legalistic mindset, then you're not going to get the blessing. You're not going to get what it's about. So grace is the key to victory over dot, 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 fill in the blank. And so I asked myself, um, why? Why is it that grace is that essential ingredient that anything we have to do with God must be mixed with grace? Why is it? And um, if I have to, I won't rush through this, so it may be that we stop halfway and finish it next week. Is that all right? Okay, so turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start with Genesis and we'll end with Revelation, but we won't cover every page in between. It could be worse. I could start with contents and end with maps. (laughs) I was reading um, years ago, and I mentioned this in my little post, Years ago, I caught up with a, uh, a person who was a Bible college student. They were also running a, uh, a youth group, and, uh, with, and, we, and we were just chatting about how it's going, and they were telling me how it's going well, but they had this one particular friend that was a, a, a student, and, um, she, and she just couldn't give up partying and drinking, right? Partying, drinking, and casual sex, she couldn't give that up. And this youth group... Um, leader said to me, I just can't get, get through to her that she's got to give those things up. And I said to this youth group leader, why, why are you trying to put a burden on this person of giving those things up? Um, like you've got to give those things up before you're saved. And I can remember one thing Brother Hagen said to us was that he said he never preached, he never preached sin he said, I always preach Jesus because he's found in his 60 years of ministry that Jesus is the answer to sin. And then uh, sometime later, a few years ago, I was flicking through the books at the Christian bookshop. And, you know, I flip through chapter headings. Anyone does that? Flip through chapter headings, you think it'll catch me. And this chapter heading caught my eye and it says, Is Christianity a superior morality? Is it a superior morality? And I'm thinking, my heart just sank at the thought that we would even try and dress ourselves up as a superior morality. I mean, isn't that somehow 
the reverse of grace. That we could be somehow superior in our morality. And it's interesting with understanding grace because it often happens like this. You sort of go through this really, it shakes you up in a lot of ways. And you start thinking, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And people who have had their identity for decades over how long they've prayed, their Christian identity, what good Christians we are, that I do these things and all that sort of stuff, it's like the ground begins to crumble under your feet and you start to realize, I I can't claim any credit for those things. And, and very often people swing around the other way and they don't, quite, they don't quite get it and then they start, and sometimes they get licentious, you know, and they start to say, well, I can do all these things. And it doesn't matter. But that's not what grace is about. So let's look, Genesis 2, and we'll read from verse, uh, we'll just read verse, um, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Anything I've provided for you, or any ability I've given you, or any blessing I have for you, you may freely enjoy, you may dwell in, you may live in, you may eat, you may partake, you may fellowship with these things, you may freely of everything I've given you. But, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, it's interesting, Genesis, like we ask ourselves, uh, like it's interesting that he said this to the man and he hadn't created woman at this stage. And there's lots of interesting things about it. And it's really important when we, you know, do we read Genesis literally or do we leave it figuratively? Do we look for the symbolism? Do we look, well, it's actually none of those things. When you read Genesis, we need to read it as though what was the intention that God was saying to these people. All right? And so I just put that out there because I don't know in this instance whether the tree was an actual tree or wasn't a tree. It kind of doesn't matter, all right? Or whether that tree symbolized something else. Um, if, it, if, it, if it is, that's good. If it's not, either way. I'm sure that the people this was written to, it was very clear what God was saying to them. And he said, you can eat. And of course, you understand, especially in those times, eating, when you eat with people, you engage with them, you, you come into communion with them, you, you, you share your life with them. He said, you can eat and live your life over all the good things I've given you, but this one tree I don't want you to have fellowship with. I don't want you to commune with this tree. And you understand, too, the Bible talks about trees. He talks about something which has not just grown up overnight. It's something that's become established. And the fruit of that tree is the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when he says knowledge, he means you've become skilled in this. Not just, oh, that's good, that's evil. No, 
you've become skilled in determining or judging what is good and what is evil and ranking it and, and sizing up and saying, well, that person, that thing is good, as in it has value. And this thing, it's not as good. Or you can say, well, I'm good because I've looked at myself and I've considered the works, my works, considered the works of my hands, and I've decided that I'm good. I might be better looking. Now, some of you don't have that problem, but it's something I struggle with. I might, thank you, Liz. <laughs> All right? Or I'm more talented or less talented or more moral or less moral. However it is you want to rank yourself against someone else and you've considered it and you've become good at it and we become good at it. We work out who's the good-looking ones, you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, when you're kids in, at school and you want to hang with the kids at cool, it's because you're eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. Or when you say, you know, like, like uh, oh, I'll have this because, you know, I deserve it. I think I deserve this. Well, you're eating of the tree of the knowledge and of good and evil. Right? Or when you rank, like, like girls, girls rank each other by popularity. Right? That this is the popular people. Guys rank themselves by size. We all know that guys say that the answer to everything, every problem is more power. All right? Bigger engine, you know, twin cam. They're like the, and they rank themselves. And girls rank each other by popularity. Who's popular? Who's not popular? And they're eating of the tree of good and evil. And so whatever it was, Satan tempted them in this, to eat for this tree, tempted Eve. And Eve, Eve ate of this. And... Um, it's interesting to see then what the results of this was in their life. What the results of becoming um, works-based, flesh-based, law-based, assess- assessing people and others in comparison to ourselves, judging ourselves according to what we've done, right? What was the result of it? And you see in the next chapter, actually before I go on, so we won't go on there. It's interesting because I, I've come to kind of an understanding that virtually everything to do with um, sin and everything to do with failure and everything to do with the struggles in life, it almost always comes down to relationships. How it is we relate to our Father, how it is our Heavenly Father, how it is to relate to each other and, and whether we're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that. And so it doesn't take much Googling to find out that, that the world's worked this out too. I, I heard something recently about, uh, you know, because there's this big gun debate going on in the States and over here. And, uh, you know, I heard someone say, you know, the most common factor between, that, that, is, that is between all the mass murderers and all the gun shooters is that they didn't, have, they didn't have a relationship with their father. So I did a little bit of Googling. And I know that uh, we're, we're all in this one way or another. 
and there's all grace and, and that, and God can fill any gap that we have and will fill any gap we have. But I did a little Googling this. So this is people that are affected by either dysfunctional relationships, people who are affected by dysfunctional relationships with their father. And we know, you know, we know as Christians pretty well that, that very often uh, that our trust that we're able to have in our heavenly father has got a lot to do with the relationship we had with our earthly father. And this is interesting. Do you know that... Uh, People who, 71% of all high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 71%. 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centres are from fatherless homes. 80% of people with anger issues that lead to rape are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who have behaviour disorders, 85% from fatherless homes. 90%, 90% of all runaway children are from fatherless homes. Do you know that if you have dysfunctional relationship with your father, your earthly father, you're 20 times more likely to be in prison you're 10 times more likely to have addiction, chemical addiction. You're nine times more likely to drop out of school. We said that. And you're twice as likely to commit suicide. Twice as likely. And then there's addiction. And I read an article recently where they've they've discovered with chemical addiction and, and drug addicts, they get, go through all these uh, programs and all that sort of stuff, but the most successful ones are the ones that have been able to establish healthy friendships and healthy relationships, and they're the ones that just come out of addiction. And so people who struggle with addiction, any sort of addiction, drug addiction, porn addiction, lying addictions, any addictions, are... Uh, have often or usually experienced some kind of early relationship trauma in their family. Sexual abuse, neglect, physical abuse, verbal or emotional abuse, and often a combination of these things. And the essence of this type of trauma, right, is that it it tries to minimise the pain and ignore that pain. And in a sense, it's a denial of what happens from that. And it, it, it... puts a band-aid over that pain that's missing in life because this trust relationship that should have been there was abused because they had an ungrace relationship with people that were key in their family. It wasn't. It was this lack of unconditional love. Now, mums, you're not going to get off lightly. There's similar statistics with mums, all right? and the relationships with their kids, but these are just what I googled. And then I started to think about the law, you know, the Ten Commandments. Because the disciples said to Jesus, they said, you know, what's the most important commandment? And he summed it up in two things. He summed it up, one, the relationship with your Heavenly Father, and two, the relationship with other people. And what's the basis of that relationship? And then you look at the Ten Commandments. I looked at the Ten, I hadn't looked at them for ages, you know. Who's been reading the Ten Commandments lately? <laughs> All right. It's this. You shall have no other gods before me. It's about a relationship with God. 
You shall not make idols. Same thing. About the relationship. Don't put up an alternate relationship to the relationship, uh, to your relationship with God. You shall not take the name of your Lord of the Lord God in vain. You'll honor that relationship with God. You'll value that relationship with God. We're going through the ten. You'll keep the Sabbath day holy. That's the only one, in a sense, that you think it mightn't be uh, about relationship, but it is because the whole thing with the Sabbath day is that you, you're forced to trust in God. You, you're not going out to work on that day. You're forced to trust in God. You say, no, it forces you to bring back to a trust relationship with your heavenly father. And then he says, honor your father and your mother. So value the relationship that you have with your father and your mother. And then there's other things. You shall not commit adultery. So you shall learn to be faithful and honor the relationship with your partner. You shall not steal from them. You shall not bear false witness against them. And you shall not covet the things that they have. And no wonder Jesus said the whole law is summed up in two things. A right relationship with God and a right relationship with the people around you. And the whole law. And here we find when when Adam and Eve sinned, when they started to eat from the knowledge of good and evil, when they started to judge their own value as compared to others and as compared to God, and when they started to look around and see where they fitted in, they fell. And we'll see the consequences of that fall. It's interesting, in verse 25, uh, he goes on to talk about um, this perfect relationship that he, he had, and he makes Eve, and the man said, this is now, verse 23, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she's been taken out of the man. And for this reason, the man shall leave the father and his mother, and be joined with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked. They hid nothing from each other and nothing from God. And look at this. And they were not ashamed. How precious. I I think the deepest cry in all of our lives is that if they really knew me, would they love me? If they really knew who I was, would they love me? And that's the answer that we get answered in grace. And grace is the key to victory in dot, 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 because we can know that God really knows us and really loves us. And they were naked and they were not ashamed. And then they fell. And it's really interesting to see the consequence of, of this fall, how it affected their relationship with God, how it affected their relationship with each other, and everything else fell with it. Everything we know that the, that, that the garden fell, his creation fell, the plan, his provision fell, and it all fell because they developed this warped, works-based, legalistic-based relationship with God and with each other. And we can see here the classic work of sin in people's lives, the effect that it has in people's lives. And it's never, it's very rarely the actual thing that is done. Sometimes it is things like murder and theft and things like that. But the actual effect of sin is not so much in what it's done, it's how it's handled and, and, and the impact it has on you spiritually, your own perception of who you are. I remember I worked in a youth refuge for a number of years back late 80s, early 90s, 
and they talked about a study that came out about children that were abused and sexually abused by people close to them. And the amazing thing about this study that came out of Germany is that really it's not so much what happened, which was horrible, but how it was dealt with afterwards. The shame, the guilt, the government interference. They, they, they soon worked out that the more the government got interfered with it, the worse the effect was. So I'm not talking about just straight taking them away from that situation, but the ongoing victimhood that is created. And it's really interesting to see here, because we know that, that the serpent tempted, that the tempted uh, Eve. And verse 6, so chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for the food and that it was a delight to her eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it fruit and ate. She gave it to her husband uh, with her and he ate. And then the Bible says the eyes of both of them were opened. They were opened to an experience that God never wanted for us, that he never created us for. And the eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they, or believed that they were inadequate. And so they did something. They sewed leaves together, and they made themselves a covering. And the first thing about the knowledge of sin in our lives and when we judge ourselves and rank ourselves by that is shame. It's guilt and shame and we cover it up. We hide it from people. We hide it from God. We hide it from each other. We cover it up. Because we know that people, you know, you know people are going to judge you, don't you? You know, you know they're going to judge you. And so they hid it from God. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't it interesting? We've always said that, that sin separates you from God. Well, if sin separated from God, why was God walking in the cool of the garden looking for them? Well, it does separate them in the sense that, it, that in our conscience and in the way we understand how we think now that we have to relate to God, it puts up this barrier of inadequacy and this barrier of fear about how he's going to deal with us and how people will deal with us, so it creates this barrier, right? The Bible says the wonderful thing about the blood of Jesus is it's able to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Hallelujah. All right? And the Lord heard them, uh, heard the sound, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves, they covered up, they hid themselves now, isn't that just the truth? Isn't that just the truth when we think that we haven't deserved or, or we haven't, you know, like the longer we go about praying, the harder it is to pray. <laughs> the longer we go about reading the Bible, the harder it is to read the Bible. The longer it is we've been since we haven't been in church, the longer it is, the harder it is, you know, and most of that is because we somehow we think that like, we pray better when we feel better about ourselves. We pray better when we feel more deserving. We think we are. And they hid from God and we hide from God. And, the, you know, the, the devastating thing about ungrace and lack of grace in our lives is we actually hide from the one and the people who love us and the one who loves us more, and we hide from him. And so they hid from it. And the Lord called, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid because I was inadequate before you. I was afraid that you would judge me. 
And God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you that, that you had no value? The greatest lie that Satan ever perpetrated on man was not to eat the apple. The greatest lie that God ever perpetrated on mankind was that there's something we can do to make us what God already made us. There's something we can do to earn righteousness. There's something we can do to earn this, this grace, this love. Or that, that if we prayed long enough or hard enough, we'll feel good about ourselves. It's the greatest lie. That's eating of the knowledge of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Who told you? And the man said, the woman. <laughs> the final thing about the guilt conscience is blame. Shame, cover up, and blame. I'm going to become a victim. It's always someone else's fault. It's what someone else has done to me, that they caused me to do it. It's the lack of acceptance that you have fallen and that you are a fallen person. These friends of mine, I told you about these atheist friends of mine, one of the big troubles they have, they said, is with animal sacrifice, the Bible, the big trouble they have is animal sacrifice and human sacrifice. And standing there in judgment against God for sacrificing animals and humans. I didn't want to get into an argument, but I know they believe in animal sacrifice. And I know they believe in human sacrifice. I want to say to them, you believe in animal sacrifice. You believe in human sacrifice. Go and just see the reply on Messenger. No, we don't. I said, well, you're a vegetarian? If you're not a vegetarian, you believe in animal sacrifice. Do you believe in the military? You believe in defending your country? Because if you do, you believe in human sacrifice. What you don't know is the devastating effect of sin that had on us. That it was so devastating that for thousands of years, animals had to surrender their life so we could see what the effect of death is on, on us when we put ourselves under the law and we become ungraced in what we see, and we think we can earn our way to God. A devastating effect. And it could only be symbolized by with the blood streaming out of Jerusalem, down through the valley, and then ultimately the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people believe in human sacrifice. They'll sacrifice themselves for their own kids. They'll stand in front of the bullet. They'll push the child out of the way, stand in front of the bus. What we don't understand is the devastation that eating from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the condemnation, the guilt, the pain that it brings upon us, that suffered, that, that Christ had to suffer to carry that. And God so loved us that He drove us out of the garden so that we wouldn't eat from the tree of the life and stay like that. You know. And if that's true, if that's true, if that's the biggest problem that we have is this ungrace and this works thing, then then I think we'd see when Jesus met people that were overcome by sin, how would he treat them? You know, because Jesus is God in the flesh, right? And so when he met people, now I know what he did with people who were thought that they were righteous. I know how he berated them. But the people who knew the impact of sin, how would he treat them? How would he treat them? And we know that the, the Samaritan woman, you know, at the well... And, and he spoke with her. And he was marveled. She was marveled. How, how can this man, a Jewish man, even 
speak to me. And the, the love and the grace and the mercy must have just oozed out of her because he, he, he wasn't hiding from the fact that she was a sinner. But when that sin got revealed to her, she knew that he knew, and yet he still loved her. You know, grace is the power for victory over dot, dot, dot. And this woman, a woman, Samaritan woman, went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in the New Testament. I just took that. And the disciples had been into that town. They collected food. Did they get anyone? Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. And she goes in. They all know her. Of course they know her. And some of them know her, like in a biblical sense. (laughs) They knew her, all right. And she comes in and she goes, look, who's told me everything? I mean everything. (laughs) That was the cure. Grace is the power for victory over dot, 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 dot. And, and, the, and the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8, you know, there's such a controversial chapter, was left out of a lot of early scriptures and, and the documents tell us that the, the early church, some of them deliberately left it out because they were afraid that it would lead to licentiousness. And Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. But I've always thought, well, how do you do that? Because we know that people who are caught in addictions, sex addictions and drug addictions, how can you just say to them, go and sin no more? How do you just say that? I mean, how cruel. Because when she came to him and everyone was judging and everyone was criticizing and everyone, and she's there and she's curled up and she's in guilt and she's in shame and she's in cover up and she's in denial. And I'll bet you she's thinking, what about the other guys? Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? And she's in denial and blaming everyone else. And he loves on her. He just loves on her. And he says, don't worry, neither do I condemn you. And you can see the little head looking up and the little eyes looking up. And he says to her, go and sin no more. Well, she can sin no more. Now that she's, she's found that love, that ache, that hole that was been in her since Eden. And then there's, how did Jesus treat with her? You know, it's interesting how they're all women. <laughs> they're not actually all women. There's other cases. But in Luke, I think Luke chapter, uh, Luke 7, and he's having a meal with the Pharisees and the prostitute comes in and she cries and she weeps and she washes his feet with, she ministers to him and she washes her, her feet with his tears and she dries it with her hair and the Pharisees go, if he was a, if he was a prophet, if you had the word of knowledge, <laughs> if you had a word of knowledge, you'd know she's a sinner, you know. And he was. He knew. Of course he knew. He knew. And of course, you know, because they used to think sin would rub off on you. They would think that sin under the law, you couldn't, you couldn't, whatever, whatever was unclean that touched you, you became unclean under grace. Whatever's unclean, you touch it, it becomes clean. Your family is sanctified. Your workplace is sanctified because you're there. And Jesus allowed her to cry on him and allowed her to weep on him, allowed her to dry the feet with his hair. Her hair. <laughs> Thank you, darling. 
And he said to them, you will never understand. You will never understand. Those who have been forgiven much will love much. And you'll never know the depth of the relationship that they'll have when you come to understand the sin and what it's done for us and how it's hurt our relationship with God, how it's hurt our loved ones. And when you come to know forgiveness, the depth of the love that you have is way deeper. One of the greatest movies I think ever made is Forrest Gump. <laughs> Seriously. They were going to do a remake of it. I'm so glad they didn't because when they were thinking of remaking it, they were talking about the, the whole plans for Forrest to go and, you know, be there when someone was shot and save it and crash down the Berlin War and all those incidental things. And they never remade it, and I think it was very wise um, and because that's not what the movie was about. They're all the little funny things in the narrative. The movie was about unconditional love. Unconditional love. And Forrest, in spite of all his handicaps, his mum loved him, didn't she? She loved him unconditionally. And he could face anything because of that. And Jenny, you know Jenny? Jenny. You know Jenny? You know, when she was young, she loved him unconditionally. She allowed him to sit next to him in the bus, remember that? And when he was being bullied, she goes, run, Forrest, run! And he runs, and because someone's believing in him, and someone's rooting for him and cheering for him, and the braces fall up, and he, and he gets liberated from that. And the whole story now is, that, is, the, is about Forrest and the love that he's received from his mother that he's now able to turn over to someone else who's tortured and twisted on the inside, which is Jenny. Because Jenny was abused by her father. And, and Forrest, in his innocence, just thought that her dad was being affectionate, but then there was sexual and physical abuse there, and she was just so twisted and tortured by that, that she grew up never being able to receive love because she was measuring herself by that. That was her value. And Forrest haunted her for years, Followed her around the country, finding everything, you know. And he'd go into the, and, and she was caught in prostitution, and she was a stripper. And she'd go into the club and he picked her up. And when she was naked, that scene, he picks her up with the guitar, and she runs away and does that time and time again. And he, she says to him, Forrest, you've got to stop doing this. And what does Forrest say to her? He says, I can't, Jenny. I love you. I can't, Jenny. I love you. And then another time, when he's done it another time, and Jenny says to him, Forrest, you don't know what love is. And when Jenny finally comes to him, and she's, she's got AIDS, we know, hep, so we, we know what it is now. They didn't know it because of her life of sleeping around in drugs. She comes to him, and he asks her to marry him. And she says yes. And he says to her, Jenny, I know what love is. I know what love is. And she found grace. And she realized that there was someone who would judge her, not by her father's abuse, that, that guilt and filth that she felt, but someone who just loved her. And her last few weeks or months uh, in that house on the bio, that he bought because his grandmother invested in Apple shares. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked on her and he didn't understand her and he loved on her. 
loved on her and loved on her and she died. And then she was set free, the little birds fly away from the tree. She'd always prayed that she would be a bird and could fly away. Beautiful story about grace, about unconditional love. How can you remake that? And the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is this love story that says grace is victory over, or grace is the answer to dot, dot, dot. And you go right to the last chapter. We've got Genesis, uh, Revelation 22. Revelations 22, page 1267. <laughs> and verse 12, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, I am the First. I am the last. Now, render to everyone according to what he's done. Like, if we insist on being judged by our works, we'll be judged by our works. As C.S. Lewis said, uh, that, we, uh, that um, we can either pray, Lord, thy will be done. And if we don't, God says, your will be done. And he's not going to force anyone to receive his grace. But then this most beautiful verse. Blessed are those who have washed their robes. And you read the previous chapters in Revelation. He's talking about washing our guilt-stained robes in the blood of Jesus. And that beautiful old hymn, He washed me, he washed me, and now I am whiter than snow. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and my aunt may enter by the gates into the city, may enter into eternity, because God never wanted us to go into eternity, being bound by works, being down by law, being in an ungrace situation where we're judging ourselves. And blessed are those who have washed their robes in the blood of Jesus. And then we can eat from the tree of life. Now, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be good. No more fear, no more pain, no more judgment, no more criticism, no more shame. No more guilt. We've washed ourselves, washed our robes in the blood of Jesus and we can eat from the tree of life and stay like that forever. Amen, ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is the key to victory over dot, 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 over whatever, whatever's uh, tormented us, just knowing that you've got unconditional love towards us. And being with people that can show that unconditional love towards us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we are washed in the blood of Jesus. They're whiter than snow. They're whiter than snow. We give you thanks and praise all for in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We trust that you've been encouraged by the message. Please consider.